It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A lot of things go into the price of a home, the condition it's in, its size, the neighborhood, the market. But what about climate change? New research suggests the changing environment is now having a real effect on homeowners' bottom lines. The University of Colorado teamed up with Penn State on this study. Ryan Lewis is one of the lead researchers, and he joins us now from CU Boulder. Hi, Ryan. How are you doing, Ryan? Doing well. Let's start with the sorts of areas you're talking about in this study. Are these places on the coasts, in floodplains? Give us a sense. Yeah, so we're looking at coastal U.S. properties. So the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association gives us very detailed maps of what the coastline looks like today and what they believe the coastline is going to look like after one foot, two foot, three foot, up to six feet of global average sea level rise. So we're utilizing these maps to try and understand real estate exposure to future sea level rise risk. But this is not purely projection. In other words, you're also looking at what homes are selling for that are vulnerable, correct? That's right. So the maps are one aspect of it. We're going to combine that with real estate transactions. And we're going to look at whether or not being in one of these future floodplains is affecting today's price. And now you say that in the future tense, but you've already done some of this work. And what does it bear out? So what we find is that being exposed to this future sea level rise risk means that today you're basically going to pay 7% less for your house. That's on average across the U.S. About 7% less. Now, that's good, perhaps, for the buyer. Not so great for the seller who's hoping to make bank. How did you come to this? Were you able to compare, say, houses in vulnerable places to houses that are not? Your instinct is exactly right. So what we're going to do is really try to isolate exposure to future sea level rise as the only factor we're looking at. So we're going to compare let's say, a two, three-bedroom home, similar size, in the same zip code, selling the same month, similar distance to the shoreline. The only difference being one of them is going to experience this tidal flooding at some point in the future, and the other will not. Now, in terms of what you've already witnessed, the 7% price difference, is it then that buyers are anticipating this? Is it like they, they feel that vulnerability in their guts? Or they as well have looked at these government maps and said, I'm not paying that for this vulnerable house? That's a great question. And we can sort of only speculate on the answer here. Uh, But our study gives us some information along these lines. So what we find is that it's not all buyers who demand this discount. Only subsets of the buying population will actually pay less for an exposed house. We find that investors, sort of sophisticated buyers, and we're measuring that by people who own sort of more than one house, uh, those folks do demand a discount. And then amongst what we're calling the non-sophisticated group or just the sort of classic owner-occupier, I fall into that category. (laughs) Within those group, we find that only when the community is very worried about climate change uh, do you see them demanding this discount. Well, that strikes me as an interesting distinction. Do you think that's important, that some people are sort of aware of this and others are not? Most definitely, Ryan, because if you think about 
what this means for buyers. You know, people enjoy their home while they have it. But for a huge percentage of the U.S. population, they require the equity in their homes for retirement. And so if you think about the timelines of sea level rise, it's exactly these folks who are sort of unaware of the issue who are going to be really holding the bag on the losses when sea level rise actually occurs. So it's really important that you make sure these sort of owner-occupying homeowners are paying the appropriate discount because they're the ones who really can't afford to face this risk in the future. An analysis by the nonprofit First Street Foundation estimates that homes in eight coastal states have lost more than $14 billion in value in the last decade or so because of flooding due to a rise in sea levels. And you found lower property values really all along the eastern seaboard, Florida, Massachusetts, New Jersey, New York. What does this suggest? I mean, any any places that weren't affected that surprised you? Well, I think if we go back to this finding that the more worried communities tend to have more of a discount, it may not be that surprising that the ones you listed are, in fact, where we see this discount. Because those states definitely correspond with these climate opinion maps as being sort of more worried. Huh. In other words, the Carolinas, I see, for instance, are not on this list. Are you saying those are more conservative states and their relationship, their concern about climate change would be different? There appears to be a little of that, yeah. I wonder if this is data that you imagine insurance companies might pay attention to, lawmakers. What what would you like the effect of this knowledge to be? Yeah, I think, you know, if you have a house now that's in a floodplain, you have to disclose that in almost everywhere in the U.S. And here we have a risk that a huge percentage of the scientific community really believes is there. And so I don't view that as entirely different from disclosing that you're currently in a floodplain or have had current flooding. You're sort of almost sure to have flooding in the future. So I think having required disclosure of these risks could potentially improve the way markets function in these coastal real estate areas. Ah, that's fascinating. If I buy a house, you have to disclose if I am currently in a floodplain. All kinds of things have to be part of the transparency of a transaction. You're saying that into the future, a seller might have to tell a buyer, these are the projections for this home's vulnerability in 10 or 20 years. You know, maybe that could be one policy change you could make. The other thing would just be to get people naturally aware of it. And I think increasing press coverage to the issue is going to bring this to the forefront of a lot of buyers in the future. So it may be that you don't even have to have a policy change if you can get enough media exposure and say, hey, guys, some of you are not paying the appropriate price for the the property you're buying. And the inherent vulnerability of it. I I wonder if this kind of research is going on for folks like me in a landlocked state, like you in a landlocked state, about the, you know, effects on property owners of, say, wildfires, of drought, the kinds of things we expect inland in the West because of climate change? It's a great question. And when I bought my house, I actually went and looked and I, and I said, hey, what's the future water situation for Boulder look like? And in Boulder, it seems to be, you're all right. You're, it's not great. Of course, I didn't have much choice because I got a job at the University of Colorado, so I couldn't choose to live somewhere else. But I think that sort of more and more, all of these risks should be entering into the calculus of where people choose to live 
and where they're buying their homes. Ryan, thanks for being with us. And it sounds as though this work will continue. We hope it does, yeah. Ryan Lewis of the Leeds School of Business at CU Boulder. His research into how climate change affects housing prices will appear in the Journal of Financial Economics. Fifty years ago, in 1968, it felt like the country might tear itself apart. The Vietnam War, the assassinations of Martin Luther King and Robert F. Kennedy— And that August, a chaotic Democratic National Convention. While party delegates bitterly debated the nomination of Hubert Humphrey for president, police and anti-war protesters clashed in bloody riots on the streets. Keep the bayonets high was the order. About face. And now they've got the demonstrators on the run up here. One of the organizers of the protests was Rennie Davis, a member of the group that came to be known as the Chicago Seven, Today, Davis is an author who lives in Berthet, Colorado, but he's back in Chicago today to mark this anniversary. Hi, Rennie. Hi, Ryan. How are you? I'm doing well. Pleasure to have you on the program. Half a century... You know, I'm going to just tell you that you've allowed a groupie to slip onto your show. You know, in my family, you're a rock star. (laughs) Curse and I went to your last Christmas public event. Oh, thank thank you. Really, we really appreciate that you work in Colorado. We really do. Well, I I appreciate that. But this conversation is about you. So so half a century (laughs) later, what, what resonance... Do those protests in Chicago have for you? Why do do they still matter? Well, they matter because in many ways the parallel between 1968 and 2018 is pretty stark. You know, for your listeners who weren't even born in that time, I'll just take you briefly through what happened. Uh, I was the coordinator of the largest anti-war and civil rights coalition of that era. We wanted to bring a million people to the Democratic Convention. Uh, we were all committed to nonviolence. Uh, permits were denied by the mayor of Chicago. It had sort of parallels to today's White House. I mean, things that were just fundamental, you know, cultural, constitutional rights like the right to assemble, the right to p- petition your government for redress grievances just because you were a citizen of the nation. These are all kind of tossed out. So we decided to come anyway, and we gathered in front of the Conrad Hilton on today. It was this day, today, uh-huh. uh, 50 years ago. And, uh, you know, it was it was like watching the sons and daughters of America get clubbed and beaten by Chicago police. And it wasn't just demonstrators. I mean, uh, newsmen were were beaten bloody and delegates from to the convention who turned out to lend moral support to us. Uh, they were beaten too. Martin Luther King's organization had a mule train that came right down Michigan Avenue as a part of a poor people's campaign. And that was beaten and clubbed while the whole world was watching. More, more people watched tonight, 50 years ago, than watched the first man landing on the moon. And it was one of the most impactful events in our country's history. I mean, a sitting president resigned. The the successor vice president was humiliated in the eyes of the whole world. Gallup polls uh, showed a majority of this country supported the government's war in Vietnam two weeks before Chicago. And two weeks afterwards, that same Gallup poll 
showed that a majority of the American people actually supported our position, which was to end the war and, and bring the GIs home. Uh, just a few things. We'll unpack a lot of what you said there. So uh, polls had indeed started to show the tide turning against the Vietnam War actually a little sooner than the 68 convention, but this was a galvanizing moment. It it was also a moment, though, that scared a lot of voters and uh, in retrospect may have helped the election of Richard Nixon. What do you think of that? Well, it's always a delicate question. You know, it's a good question, honestly. Uh, what was really going on was uh, Hubert Humphrey, who had been kind of a part of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, you know, was in lockstep with President Johnson, who was at this point the, the commander-in-chief of the Vietnam War. Uh, in order to become the nominee, this is what he felt he had to do. And so he, you know, it was, you know, we were standing up against the war. But as Humphrey came out and began to get some independence from Johnson, as it got closer to the election, uh, you know, like starting around September before the November vote, the, those those distances with Nixon began to tighten. Uh, he lost the electoral college, but in the popular vote, he was within one percent of the of the margin to actually pull it off. You know, so what it was was the country really wanted to end the war, and I, we felt at one point that going through the electoral process was going to be a possibility. After McCarthy uh, stood up against Johnson and successfully in New Hampshire, I mean, he came in second, but he won forty-two percent of the vote. That opened the door for Bobby. Kennedy to run. Bobby won uh, the California primary and it really looked like he was on his way and that that what was needed outside the convention would basically you know, fold more back into the electrical system. But it, it just didn't happen that way. He was assassinated, as you know. And, and it was really uh, – it was the anti-war movement that continued to express the – the need for this country to end the war. And Johnson decided uh, you know, do, not... Do people not stand- I'm, Rennie, I'm, I'm just going to interrupt because there's so yeah. much of this story we've got to get to and so much of your perspective I want to yeah. hear. Yeah, <laughs> okay. So Johnson had, had obviously decided not to run again. And uh, Vietnam is so very much in the backdrop of these, uh, these protests, the background. And uh, you say that you had wanted to bring a million people to Chicago to the 1968... Democratic National Convention. You wanted these protests to be peaceful. And you had started to lay the groundwork for that uh, by visiting Chicago in advance and trying to get the permits you needed for such a gathering. But that was not easy in Chicago. Yeah, the the mayor of Chicago just dug in. I mean, we actually had the support of the of the federal government for permits. Uh, Ramsey Clark was attorney general at that time. He sent out a top assistant, uh, Roy Wilkins, to meet with me first to just, you know, make his own assessment of where our coalition was at. He was convinced that we were committed to nonviolence and he went into the mayor's office to basically pitch the case from the from the perspective of the federal government and the Democratic Party, that this was in the national interest that permits be granted. Wow. 
But it was really mayor's, uh, the mayor's decision not to grant permits. And that we understood coming to Chicago that 12,000 Chicago police would be mobilized to basically clear the streets and the parks, you know, of, of any demonstrators. What was the first whiff you got that this event might turn violent? Did you have some sense when it began that it could go in that direction? I, I honestly, Ryan, had a plan A and a plan B. You know, our plan A was that we would march uh, to the International Amphitheater nonviolently and assemble on the night of the nomination outside the convention hall, you know, as supporting our position to end the war in Vietnam. But quite honestly, we didn't have permits for that. So we gathered in a park way north side of Chicago called Lincoln Park, and uh, I, I just tried. My plan B was just to basically prepare to have uh, the ability to deal with whatever might happen. Although I never really fully anticipated how severe it would be, uh, we had close to a thousand uh, medics uh, on on hand to support anybody if there was, you know, clubbing by police. And we also had three, I don't know, three to four thousand marshals who could uh, actually organize in the in chaos and bring people. On the second night of the of the convention, uh, the police came in. There was a big uh, cross right in the middle of the park, surrounded by priests and nuns from the Roman Catholic Church of Chicago. And I pleaded with them to not stay there when the police came, that this was not a traditional nonviolent demonstration where where you would be carted off to prison. That was, you know, and, and they, you know, it was their courage and their belief to stay with the cross, but they were they were beaten. Uh, the police came in and cleared the park. It was they, – they moved into the park clubbing and beating and then they moved through the park and actually clubbed people who just were Chicago residents sitting out on their porch watching what was happening. And again, and, this, this um, park was, was not near the convention hall. You'd been granted a permit for that space, but it was so far from where the action was, where the speeches exactly. were happening. And you, yeah. you yourself, uh, earlier that day, Wednesday, Wednesday is sort of the crescendo of these events, but earlier that day, you, you took quite a beating yourself. Tell us about that. Well, at the very last minute, the the Chicago authorities decided to grant a permit in the middle of the day. This was on Wednesday, August 28th at Grant Park, which was in downtown, the downtown area, but but uh, next, next close to the lake. And, uh, you know, a permit to us meant, you know, a, a legal binding agreement that we had a right to assemble. We had mothers turn out with baby strollers and their children, you know. Uh, what happened was a, a young teenager uh, went to the flagpole and lowered the flag to half-mass. Later, we had a trial about what happened, and he testified that this was a sign of international distress. And with that, the police came in and, and beat people as they came and arrested him and pulled back out. 
Uh, our marshals immediately, you know, formed a link fence around the crowd, brought, you know, order to the situation immediately. I was on a bullhorn and, you know, reminded the police that we had a legal permit and this was our right to be here and assemble, you know. And rather than pull back, which was my suggestion for the peace of the day, they invaded again. And, and, and you ended when, up in the hospital. Uh, I, I did. You know, I, I was clubbed. I was – it wasn't so much the being hit on the head but being hit on the back over and over again. A little chain link fence in the park probably made my day. Uh, I was able to climb under that fence and just have two or three seconds to stand up and, and get into the crowd before I, I passed out. I'll tell you the story about the hospital. It's one of the most amazing things. I went to a hospital to get stitches. Police knew that I had, you know, been clubbed but not arrested and they literally went door to door in the hospital, room to room, searching for me and there were uh, employees in the hospital who could, you know, risk their entire career to do this. They had me on a little dolly, covered me with a sheet and moved me, you know, from room to room, evading the police till they could get me to an exit and I was able oh. to slip out. And so in Chicago, I was I was never actually arrested. Uh, you were, I think, at a friend's house the evening of continued protests that Wednesday, watching in a way from afar this, again, nonviolent, that was at least the intention, protest turned even further violent. It it did, you know, and, and the, uh, you know, you never want to see this happen. And I, I, I mean, I, I can't really say, well, the ends justify the means. I would never say that. It's just that we felt that not only do we have the right to oppose the government's policy in a war, but we also had the right to assemble. And so the, the courageous part, I suppose, and the controversial part for some was that we made the decision to go to Chicago without a permit. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was, in my view, the the appropriate thing to do, although it, it led to a mayhem. You may recall there was actually a presidential commission that studied who caused these riots in Chicago. And it was called the Walker Report. It went right to the top of the New York Times bestseller list and it squarely placed the, the responsibility at the mayor's office. Of all the things that were ever written about me personally in the 60s, the Walker Report is my most, you know, glowing positive communication. <laughs> you know, it's clear that we really were sincere about wanting to have a nonviolent demonstration in Chicago, but it just was not to be allowed. You and the other organizers, people like Abby Hoffman, Tom Hayden, Bobby Seale, ultimately went on trial for this, and you were known as the Chicago 7. Uh, these proceedings went on for months with testimony from huge names from the left. I mean, Judy Collins, Judy Collins, pardon me, Allen Ginsberg. Uh, and that trial in many ways became a circus on both sides. Um, you were eventually convicted of intent to incite a riot. That conviction was reversed. And I took a look at your bio online and found something interesting. In the intervening years, you became a venture capitalist and an advisor to Fortune 500 companies. Did, did you become, to some extent, part of the system you were fighting against then? 
Uh, I would say that the entire movement of the 1960s left society to try to change the world. And at the end of the 60s, early 70s, uh, I mean, we even had John Lennon join the movement at the very end. Uh, it, it clearly had run its course and was winding down. And so people did return to society, but it was a slow boat to China. No one was <laughs> rushing back to get their careers back in order, although eventually that did happen. People went off to the, to the nature and, you know, sat in nature and worked on farms and uh, the Beatles ran off to India to learn a meditation. It was quite an interesting thing. There was a period of quiet and reflection that took place. You see it today. I mean, I call it the quiet revolution. It started at the end of the 60s. And today there's there's millions and millions of people who who really do want to change the world by, by fundamentally focusing on themselves and changing themselves. Gandhi talked about it, as you know. You know, you have to really be the change that changes the world. So, there is a movement that's beginning now in the in our country, and you know, one part will stand up for humanity, in the reminiscent of what we saw in the '60s and the Renaissance and other other great movements that changed everything. But also, there's this new element called the New Humanity Movement. Uh, your re- your listeners can learn about it at uh, FFH, foundationforhumanity.org, forward slash newhumanity2018. That there's a whole world of people that are really trying to build communities and uh, bring new technologies to the planet and really have showcases of what sustainability looks like. And this is R- Rennie, let, an me, let me just interrupt and, and just say that you see so many uh, ties between movements today and movements then, which makes me think, and, and we have less than a minute, that, that you're in Chicago today, 50 years later. Just briefly, what will the scene be there today? Today? Yeah, very briefly. Well, uh, you know, we were going to do a public event at Daily Plaza, but the musicians that we had were on tour and were not able to change their their schedule at the last minute. So uh, it's mostly an opportunity for me today to meet with people like yourself and your listeners. Uh, uh, we're, we're, we're having various media you know, gatherings, you know, having this memory. But there's also a coalition forming right now out of, you know, what happened in Chicago 50 years ago to basically go to the Republican convention in Charlotte uh, and, and what could well be the largest demonstration in the history of the world. That, that's the intention that humanity can stand up and those who are shocked and horrified by what's happening – uh, in this country, you know, are going to be heard. And, well, thank and you so, so much for being with us, It seems like Rennie. it's happening again. <laughs> I appreciate your time, and, and thanks for those kind words at the beginning. He's Rennie Davis, one of the organizers of protests outside the Democratic National Convention in 1968. He's now an author and the founder of the Foundation for a New Humanity, which he mentioned. Uh, Davis lives in Berthet, Colorado. 1968 was pivotal in so many ways, Fifty years ago, Aretha Franklin recorded the feminist and civil rights anthem, Think. Well, Denver jazz and blues singer Hazel Miller remembers the impact Franklin had on her as a young woman. 
it was straight up gospel. And you just didn't hear that on the radio when I was in the ninth grade, you know? So it was like somebody invaded my dreams and put those songs on the radio. She changed everything for me. All this year, we've been inviting Colorado artists into the CPR Performance Studio to record songs from 1968, and Hazel Miller chose Think, a song with Aretha Franklin's death that takes on even more meaning. The Hazel Miller Band performing Think, a tribute to the late Aretha Franklin. Franklin will be laid to rest Friday in Detroit. She passed away last week after a battle with pancreatic cancer. She was 76. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Even if you're not a musical theater fan, you probably will recognize this. Come sweeping down the plain And the waving wheat Can sure smell sweet When the wind comes right behind the rain Oklahoma was Rodgers and Hammerstein's first collaboration and a model for musicals that followed. The Denver Center for the Performing Arts marks the show's 75th anniversary with its own staging set in an all-black town. Chris Coleman directs it, and Antoine L. Smith stars. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Thanks Thank for you for us. having us. I think of Oklahoma as a coming-of-age story and a romanticized view, for sure, of westward expansion. Chris, why did you want to set your directorial debut, by the way, with the DCPA in an all-black town? Well, I, I had the opportunity to hear um, a lot of African-American talent come in and audition for another show that I did in New York maybe seven, eight years ago, and... For whatever reason, a lot of them sang Rodgers and Hammerstein. I was kind of like, oh, my God, this is thrilling hearing this in a new way. And I had the idea, could you do an Oklahoma that would make any sense with this group of people? And and I went back and read it and I realized, oh, well, the story actually holds, you know. And But then I thought, well, is there any historical context for that crazy idea? And lo and behold, I found that in 1906, the year before Oklahoma became a state when the play is set, there were 50 all-black towns in Oklahoma, 137,000 African-Americans. 
I didn't know that. That was and some new- in Colorado. Yeah, 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 Indeed. absolutely. And that that was news to me. And so it just became a way of um, uh, seeing the show through new eyes, and and also giving voice to a part of history that most of us hadn't heard. Is this a history that you knew about, Antoine? This is not a history that I uh, knew about. Actually, um, once I got the role, of course, I went to doing my character study and research. And was shocked to see that there were 25% of the Cowboys then were African-American. And I had no idea. I'll say that you star as Curly. He's the quintessential cowboy. Yes, yes, yes. What made you want to take a crack at this role? Um... Also, can Just I have can I have sorry. your voice? Your voice yeah. is. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking the same Thank thing. You actually. Very much. Thank you very much. Okay. Wait, wait till you hear him say. I'll let you keep oh. it, but let okay. me have you ask you that question. Much. What about this role spoke to you? Um, I just think just having the opportunity of being an African-American actor and having the opportunity to play these non-traditionally cast parts is uh, a huge testament to Chris and others who take the chance to allow us to, uh, to give us this opportunity. And um, just the, musical, the music of Rodgers and Hammerstein, I just love it. Obviously, that's my wheelhouse with my voice, but just getting to tell this story and sing this beautiful music as Curly was a great opportunity that I couldn't pass up. But I wonder if you ever saw yourself in Rodgers and Hammerstein. Um, oh, I've always seen myself in Rodgers and Hammerstein, but as Curly, I did not. When I got the audition to come in, I was like, for Curly? Well, first it was for Will, and I was like, wait a minute, I'm not a, I'm not a dancer at all. This has to be wrong. <laughs> and then two days later, my agent came back with, uh, with uh, Curly, and I was like, Curly, okay. They're doing an all-black production, so yeah. I can do this. Yeah. This can be me. This can be me. But how, never in my life did I say, oh, one day I'll play Curly. How much did this script need adjusting, Chris? Um, almost none. Um, actually, we, we, I think we changed three lines, uh, a lyric, two, two lyrics and, and, and a line. And it was mostly just about um, hair color or eye color. Huh. You know, otherwise, it, it all holds up. You had to get permission from the estate. Do I have that right to you, make any changes? That's accurate. That's accurate. And I was, um, I was initially nervous because they are famously persnickety and protective, especially of the their more, more famous properties. And um, so I got on the phone with them and and pitched the idea, shared a little bit about the history with them, and they're like, "Sounds super interesting. Go for it." Just consult with us about any changes that you need. So they've been super helpful. And actually, the the head of the estate's coming out for opening. Oh, really? Yeah. Now, I think that there might be the potential to kind of romanticize these all-black towns, but they were really a function of segregation. I mean, they were really a function of the fact that that there were two separate countries in many respects. Well, um, a lot of the folks, I'll jump in and then you you follow up on Antoine. Um, A lot of the folks were leaving the Deep South. You know, what we know know of as the Great Migration, we mostly know about folks that moved to the North and the Industrial North. The, The story about the folks that moved to the West is much... Um, less told. But clearly they were leaving what felt like an inhospitable environment to to something that was unknown and a blank slate, but where you had the possibility of creating freedom. And that is that is absolutely documented when you go back and read about these, these stories. It was incredibly a, a hard journey, really difficult journey, but uh, you could create your own community. Right. How is that depicted on stage? Antoine. Which which part? The community? Yeah. What does uh, it look like, feel like? Um it I think it just it feels like the way that it would have, have been then. I mean, of course, Oklahoma is a fictional story, but I believe that back then there were black people that lived this exact 
same way, you know. So it's it's depicted as if black people lived in that time and and just the way it was for them. I don't think it's any different from the way it would be depicted for white people. Yeah, really. and 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 I think what it does, and and it's partly um, the casting, and I, I think it's partly our approach to the story. I think it feels more real, more grounded. It feels more, very natural. It doesn't yeah. feel out of doesn't place feel at super all. corny. Um, the more authentic, maybe than you are accustomed to seeing with the Rodgers and Hammerstein. I think that's kind of the beauty of of what's happening on stage. Dance, uh, as Antoine alluded to, is an integral part of the musical. <laughs> Choreographer Agnes DeMille created the original moves. Mm-hmm. DCPA brought in Dominique Kelly mm-hmm. to choreograph this production. Uh, like from La La Land fame. And uh, Kelly said in an interview, a lot of facets of the black experience is what I wanted to capture in the movement. What does that look like on stage? Oh, hard to describe when you're listening on the radio. <laughs> um, but, but you know, I know one of the things that – one of his inspirations was this um, a documentary on Netflix um, on Ugly Delicious. It's an episode of Ugly Delicious about the history of fried chicken and um, and what that has meant in the black community in particular. And um, and, and what, he, the, what he said to me, which I love and I think he's actually tried to capture, is how would this community move and celebrate – if there were no white people watching. Right. And that looks different than dances or movement that Agnes DeMille created or that have traditionally uh, been seen in Oklahoma. And, you know, a lot of times it just looks like really inspiring. And sometimes you're like, oh, okay, this is, a, a, you know, a, a, a view of a community celebrating that I have never seen. In Rogers well, I think it's very special because a lot of his movements are very grounded. And of course, like, as we know, a lot of slaves come from Africa and a lot of traditional dances are down low, are very earthy, are very strong. And that's what his choreography is, is giving You've a representation of. Certainly whet my appetite to this. You're <laughs> listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. We're talking about a new production of Oklahoma at the Denver Center. It is set in an all-black town uh, in the West. And do, do I have it right that the cast did a visit to the site of one of these towns? We actually, um, we did a field trip to the Museum of the American Black West. Which, which I didn't know existed. No, like, no. no one knows um, and over in Five Points. And it's in a beautiful home that was the home of the first black doctor in Denver. Mm-hmm. Um, this and, is the Blair Caldwell. No, no, no. Blair Caldwell's down the street. This is Got a different, um, kind of more humble museum. But uh, downstairs, there's a, a beautiful 35-minute documentary about Deerfield, which was an all-black town, you know, 40, up near Greeley here in Colorado, and the history of that town. And then we actually had the guy who, who created that film come in and talk to the cast. It was completely, completely fascinating. Right. What stood out for you? Um, just... Just knowing that we had like these towns, like I had no idea that there were all black towns at that time that were thriving. Like, I mean, at the at the top of Deerfield, like when they were thriving, it was over a million dollars in revenue and property owned at that time. And uh, Deerfield being founded by uh, Oliver Jackson, a black man who just just knew that black people can come and have their own things and thrive really blew my mind. Especially so, at that time. Yeah. The, the museum you are referencing, I just want to make sure we get the name on the record, the Black American West Museum Thank Heritage you. Center. You. I, uh, I know that up. you also worked with uh, Blair Caldwell in, yes. in some of the fashioning yes. of this musical. 
The musical is set in the early 1900s. The first performance of Oklahoma was in 1943. Does it feel relevant today? You take that one, Antoine. <laughs> uh, I think it feels relevant. I think all stories of history should always feel relevant and should always be told. So, yes, I think it feels very relevant. And I, I think, you know, what what became central to uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein, because they adapted this from a play that already existed. Mm-hmm. What became central to them as, you know, we were in the middle of World War II was what does it mean to be an American? How do you claim your piece of the American dream? Huh. And I think that thought only gets more resonant with a black cast in today's climate. I think that question of who owns the American dream, what does it look like, who gets to um, participate in it is is really vital. So I I hope that it's uh, an opportunity for celebrating and for joy and for reflection. Is there any sense that other theater companies might adopt this production, this idea? Is that something you hope? I just hope to open it and run it and have a fantastically <laughs> right. successful run well, here I'm in Denver. Hoping, first first. I'm hoping that it will it will uh, open more theater directors, owners' eyes to show that we can tell these stories and that we should be telling these stories. What else would you like to see adapted, Antoine? <laughs> like, what is a role yeah, what else do you'd you love do, to play in the... Rodgers and Hammerstein canon, maybe. Um, I don't know. I got to do a little Billy Bigelow already, so that was fun. Um, Antoine was the um, the cover for Billy Bigelow on the on Broadway. The Broadway yeah, production Josh Henry, just closed. Amazing, amazing performer. Um, I, I think we'll I, have to leave it there. Great, yeah, actually, okay. time wise. Sorry, but, but yeah, yeah, it, that 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 was one. I can't think of another one at this moment. Antoine Smith stars <laughs> in the Denver Center's <laughs> new production of Oklahoma. Chris Coleman directs it. It runs September seventh through October fourteenth. This is Colorado Matters. Halfway up the side of the world's largest mesa, there's something new. Astronomy buffs have built an observatory. Its many telescopes will be open to everyone, from school kids to astrophotographers. And you don't even have to be on the western slope to make use of it. Director of the Grand Mesa Observatory, Terry Hancock, spoke to me in our Grand Junction studio. Terry, welcome to the program. Good morning, Ryan, and thanks very much. Paint a picture for us of this observatory. It's on a remote, high desert, really like ranch land that's traditionally been used for cattle grazing, not stargazing. (laughs) Yes, it is. And uh, my next door neighbors have a huge ranch. And, uh, you know, quite often we are guests to the horses and to the cows. What is the importance of this place uh, of stargazing from the side of a mesa on the western slope? Well, I lived for 17 years in Michigan after I moved out from Australia and I was living in a in a place where we only had like about 60, 70 clear nights each year. Huh. I was very frustrated with the weather conditions, the light pollution. What we've got here is a very dark spot in Colorado. It's It's probably one of the darkest areas in Colorado that has a observatory. We have good altitude away from the pollution. You know, we're at 6,150 feet. We're 25 miles away from Grand Junction and the weather conditions are just perfect. You know, we 
We are averaging close to 200 clear nights every year. I wonder if the wildfire smoke is having an, an effect, though, on visibility. Yes, it certainly has. It's been terrible. Thankfully, in the last couple of days, we've seen quite a lot of rain and things have cleared up quite tremendously, you know. I'd like to talk more about astrophotography since it's such an important component of this observatory. As an astrophotographer, you have photos published by NASA and National Geographic. I I guess, first off, are there many astrophotographers in the world, Terry? Oh, yeah. There are literally thousands. Okay. Yeah. And, And it's growing, you know. In the last decade, the prices of equipment for astrophotography have really come down within the reach of the average novice. And, uh, you know, it's quite possible for someone to get involved in astrophotography from about $2,000 upwards. Now, the owners of this ranch where the observatories are, uh, are John and Vicki Manser. He's a former commander of the Air Force Space Center, and he's retired to Florida. And he explained that uh, this observatory in rural Colorado allows astrophotographers and astronomers all over the world to control the telescopes without having to actually travel to the Grand Junction area. From my computer here or from your computer there or from computers anywhere in the world, in reality, I can tap into any of the five telescopes we have there and tell them what what star or what galaxy, whatever I want to look at. The telescope will flew over to that. It'll take the pictures I tell it to take. It will download them, and in a few hours I can have all that data in my computer. Now, I understand the celestial body of the month for August was Andromeda. You also featured the Elephant's Trunk Nebula, the Pac-Man Nebula, and the Horsehead Nebula. I should mention here that a nebula is a cloud of space gas. Uh, But it sounds like looking into outer space is a bit more like taking a Rorschach test. I mean, does everyone see the same thing or are there arguments about what certain nebula resemble? Well, I wouldn't say there were arguments and I see different things than probably you would see when we look at an object. With the Horsehead Nebula, when I look at that, I actually see a seahorse, not a regular horse. (laughs) And there's also another big horse that's hiding in the background. And, you know, I don't know whether... Many other people have seen that or not, but bearing in mind that light traveling at 184,000 miles per second, you know, many of the objects that we are looking at, we're receiving photons from these objects that are thousands to millions of years old. Mm. It really is looking back in time, isn't it? Yeah, it's a virtual time machine. How did you come... To choose Grand Junction, I mean, I know that you said that the area has its advantages in terms of stargazing, but of all of the places in the world, you're from Australia, you'd been in Michigan. This is connected, I guess, to a photography class that you were doing down under. Correct, yeah. John Manser, actually, one of one of my clients, um, you know, we just got talking one day about how dark the skies are here, and he told me that it was so dark on some nights that the Milky Way actually casted a shadow. So that got me really intrigued. And, you know, John's got this property here, and it 
had been his dream to build an observatory here. And, you know, one day I just said to him, okay, if you want to do it, I'll go down there and run it for you because having a remote observatory, you, you need someone there to run it. It just doesn't run by itself. So John got me down here and I fell in love with the place and the people and I moved here and I'm not looking back. It's just awesome. No, you're not looking back. You're looking up. (laughs) Exactly. I'm looking up. (laughs) Terry, thanks so much for talking to us. Oh, it's a great pleasure, Ryan. It really is. Terry Hancock directs the new Grand Mesa Observatory. He joined us from our studio on Main Street in Grand Junction, and we'll post some of Terry's astrophotographs to CPR.org. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.